who is the Associate Professor of Scripture and Theology at our own Augustine Institute. He received a PhD in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary. He's authored scholarly articles for academic journals, such as the Journal of Biblical Literature and the Journal for the Study of Paul and His Letters. His most recent project is the Apostle Paul, Catholic Perspectives on Pauline Theology, co-authored with Brant Petrie and John Kincaid, that is forthcoming from Erdman's. In addition to engaging in that world of scholarship, Dr. Barb is also known for his ability to translate his research into terms accessible for all audiences. He's also written popular level books on the Psalms and the Book of Revelation. He lives here in Aurora, Colorado, with his wife, Kimberly, and six young children. Let's welcome Dr. Barber. I think so. Thank you very much, Lynn, for having me. Thank you for coming. Thank you for staying. I have a handout for this presentation, and we put them all on the chairs. Does everybody have one? Is there anyone that needs a copy of the handout? Just raise your hand and uh, yes i think over there along the sides we have some people there that need handouts all right thank you very much yes yeah, so as uh, lynn uh, pointed out i've been married for 11 years we have six children ages 10 to 1. we had two miscarriages that were very difficult um, but uh, now that you know where i stand on humani vitae uh, uh, i'd like to talk a little bit about where we go from here. But before we get underway, uh, I'd like to begin with a prayer, if you don't mind. So let's begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we know that you are the Savior. We live in a world that needs your salvation, that needs saving. And it's not simply because of a future threat, of eschatological punishment. We know that you save us in a way that goes beyond mere fire insurance. You want to save us from ourselves. You want to save us from selfishness. You want to save us from sin so that we can find fulfillment, happiness, and peace in you, even in this life. Help us to come to understand how Paul VI's great encyclical, written 50 years ago, preserves your teaching and help us to live by it, by your grace. We ask all the angels and saints in heaven to pray for us, and we say glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In his famous encyclical, Paul VI laid out some of the consequences that human society would take, So some of the, the paths that we would take, some of the dangers we were setting ourselves up for, if we continued on this path that he was so concerned about, in particular, artificial contraception. 
In number 17 of that encyclical, he writes the following, and I'm an academic. I like to see the words right in front of me. So I've given you the handout as well so you can see it. Really is quite remarkable to consider what it is he says here with the hindsight that we can have today. Responsible men, he says, can become more deeply convinced of the truth of the doctrine laid down by the church on this issue if they reflect on the consequences of methods and plans for artificial birth control. Let them first consider how easily this course of action could open wide the way for, and he lists a number of things. First, he says, marital infidelity and a general lowering of moral standards. He warned, if human society embraces the practice of artificial contraception, we set ourselves up to become a society that's more accustomed to marital infidelity. If we go down this route, he said, we will see a general lowering of moral standards. Who could disagree that that is where we are today? I mean, it, it just seems so obvious from this point, looking backwards, that he was right. That's just the first thing he warns against. Another effect that could give cause for alarm is that a man who grows accustomed to the use of contraceptive methods may forget the reverence due to a woman and disregarding her physical and emotional equilibrium reduce her to being a mere instrument for the satisfaction of his own desires. It's a good thing that hasn't happened. All around us, we see more and more the objectification of women and how scarred our society has become by it. Recently, the Me Too movement has spotlighted this in, in, in some surprising ways. And it's sort of remarkable that there are even people now who are not really at all coming from a perspective of faith, who are pointing to artificial contraception as a problem for respecting women in our culture. Indeed, this prophecy, if you will, has come to pass. Finally, he says, careful consideration should be given to the danger of this power passing into the hands of those public authorities who care little for the precepts of the moral law. In other words, he points out that civil authorities concerned with issues such as population and other poverty will resort to endorsing and even in some cases requiring sterilization. 
Consequently, unless we are willing that the responsibility of procreating life should be left to the arbitrary decision of men, we must accept that there are certain limits beyond which it is wrong to go to the power of man over his own body and its natural functions. The last concern he has here that he lists is that if we go down this route of embracing artificial contraception, we will imagine that there are no limits to our ability to manipulate, to disregard nature. And I think Dr. Lappert's talk earlier shows us the extent towards which we've come in that direction. Who would have ever imagined in 1968 that a talk like Dr. Lappert's would be given in the year 2018? Except maybe Paul VI. He says, if we go down this route, people will imagine there are no limits to human nature. What Paul VI outlines here are four major concerns that he believed posed threats to us if we embraced a culture of a contraceptive mentality. Now, at the end of the day, as Emily Stimson pointed out, Humanae Vitae isn't simply an encyclical about the rejection of contraception. It's a celebration of what we would call the gospel of life. John Paul II called the gospel of life. The reason contraception is the focus of this particular encyclical is because Paul VI is ultimately concerned with our ability to live out God's plan for our lives. So the question is, where do we go from here? Now we're at this point in history where Paul VI has been demonstrated to be right, and I would dare to say we are heading into waters that are entirely uncharted. We don't know where we're going to end up. Who could have imagined we've come this far? Where do we go from here? Well, the answer to that question is always the same. Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of everlasting life. Where do we go from here? We go to Christ. Amen? Amen. This conference is focused on the gospel of life. And we recognize that the reason we are so committed to the sanctity of life, to preserving the sanctity of life, for preserving God's vision for marriage, is because at the end of the day, we know that these are constitutive aspects of the gospel itself, the good news. And so to figure out how to engage in a culture that we are increasingly finding difficult to get our heads around, to comprehend. In order to do that, the only way to go forward is, in a sense, 
to go back, to go back to Christ. And what's remarkable is when we look at the Gospels, we see that Jesus is addressing a culture that is, in many ways, dealing with the very same concerns that even Paul VI talks about in this encyclical. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the big issues that Jesus is facing in first century Judaism, one of the big questions that's posed to him is a political question of sorts. What do you think of divorce and remarriage? This was a major question in Jesus' day, and make no mistake about it, it was politically charged. Because if you remember, prior to Jesus coming on the scene, there was another man who was sent by God, who specifically spoke out on this issue of marriage. His name was John the Baptist. And he called out Philip. He called out Herod, rather. And he called him out for his violation of God's plan for marriage. And you know what happened to John the Baptist. In Jesus' day, we know that divorce was common. We know that divorce was common. It was not something that was unheard of. It was not something that uh, was rare. Not at all. In fact, even in the Torah, even in the law, there was a stipulation that allowed for divorce. We read about this in Deuteronomy 24. If you look on your handout, you'll see under divorce in ancient Judaism, Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in Hebrew, urat davar, if you found some, some, unde- some unclean thing, so if a man finds something unclean, something indecent in her, he writes her a bill of divorce, he puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs of his house. In the first century, Jews understood Moses permitted divorce and remarriage. In fact, there were tremendous debates in Jesus' day among the teachers about what the limitations, if any, there were on that prescription in the Torah. When I was a young boy, I was um, 15, I started confirmation class. I lived in Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a suburb of LA, and my uncle is a Catholic priest. And for a very short time, my uncle was stationed at a parish in Burbank, California, that was located right behind Disney Studios. It was right around the corner from where Jay Leno filmed The Tonight Show every night. And there were many celebrities that went to the parish. So when I went to my first confirmation class, I walked in through the door, I looked up. I was only half surprised that my confirmation teacher was a famous actor on a television show that I watched every week. I won't tell you who he was, but I'll tell you he was a very well-known actor on a major sitcom in the 1980s that my family watched together once a week. Everybody in the class was awestruck, starstruck. 
we have a celebrity as our confirmation teacher. And the class began, everybody sat down, he said, now I know a lot of you are young and you probably think the Catholic Church isn't cool. He said, but I'm going to tell you, man, the Catholic Church is really cool. He said, the Catholic Church has a lot of misunderstood beliefs. And, you know, there are probably some things that you think the Catholic Church teaches, but, you know, we've been changing a lot of our teachings over the last few years. So the Catholic Church, you know, we've, we've changed our minds on a lot of things. So, you know, maybe there's some issue that you don't like about the Catholic Church. I, we may not teach that anymore. Some theologians have called a lot of them in, a lot of issues that we thought were dogmas, we've called them into question now. What are some things that scare you about Catholic teaching? And a kid raised his hand and said, hell. He said, well, that's great. I'm glad you brought that up. We don't believe in hell anymore. And I'm sitting in the back row going, this is news to me. And I raised my hand and I said, excuse me, sir. And I said, Mr. So-and-so. I said, I'm, I'm kind of confused because Jesus still teaches about hell in the Gospels, right? And I quoted a passage, you know, wail and grind their teeth. And he said, you're a Pharisee. He called me a Pharisee. And he said, you know, the Pharisees are rigid and they're just concerned with tradition and they want to run everybody's life for them. And they had these rigid codes. I thought to myself, oh my gosh, am I a Pharisee? I mean, he's on TV. He must be right, you know. I went on. I got a PhD. I studied scripture. And, you know, I've come to learn a lot about the Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees have their origins. We're not really sure exactly what the relationship is. But there, there is some relationship to the early rabbis of the first century the school of Hillel, the school of Shammai. And the Pharisees, and the later rabbis, uh, debated quite a bit about divorce and remarriage. What did these rigid conservative, these rigid doctrinaire teachers of Jesus' day say about marriage, divorce and remarriage? I thought you might find this interesting. Okay. This is from the Mishnah. It's a second century collection of rabbinic sayings. And there are always historical questions we want to be aware of. Sometimes these teachings don't always get well preserved. But generally, when you read scholarly books on Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage, they generally recognize these traditions as uh, authentic. And so we read in the Mishnah about the earlier school of Shammai. And these earlier rabbis who had some connection to the, to the, to the Pharisaic movement. The school of Shammai says, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. For it is written because he has found in her indecency in anything. So some said you can only divorce your wife if she did something that was unchaste. And the school of Hillel said he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish. Honey, look. Looks like you overcooked it. I'm filing for divorce. I'm not kidding. That's what one of the rabbis, this is the school, a whole school of rabbis thought this, right? He may divorce her even if he spoiled a dish for him, for it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. So if her food is indecent, go find somebody else. 
Rabbi Akiva, one of the most famous rabbis, even if he found another fairer than she, divorce your wife, you find somebody who's prettier. And it shall be if she finds no favor in his eyes. If she doesn't find favor in your eyes anymore, too many wrinkles, let her go. Go find another one. This is the context in which Jesus is teaching in the first centuries. Boy, those rigid Pharisees, huh? It's often funny. I think back now, I wish I could walk back into that confirmation class and say, you know, I don't think the Pharisees were all that rigid. If you find a wife, you find a woman who's prettier than your wife, I divorce your wife. Sort of interesting. In fact, the ones who would have appeared especially strict was this crazy guy out in the wilderness named John the Baptist, who was saying, uh, you know, I don't think this is appropriate. All right? John the Baptist was baptizing, as you know, out in the, in the region of the Jordan. This is where Jesus is later. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 19, we read, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, Paran to Jordanu in, in the Greek. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came, and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce your wife for any cause? Now, why do you think the Pharisees are out there asking Jesus this question? They don't like him very much. They don't like Jesus very much. What did Paul VI warn about? Paul VI said that if we embrace, embrace artificial contraception, we will be under the thumb of political authorities who will be enforcing immoral interpretations of the law of nature. Guess what? Jesus faced that. This is what Jesus is doing. In, his first, in the first century, he's out in the wilderness. He happens to be in a place his cousin was. If you read the earlier part of Matthew's gospel, what do we read? Now, when, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to John the Baptist all Judea and all the region about the Jordan. John the Baptist was in the region beyond the Jordan. And what happens when he's out in the region beyond the Jordan? He's talking about marriage, and it causes him to lose his head. So the Pharisees say, oh, guess where Jesus is? Let's see, what should we ask him about? You see, the reason they're asking him about divorce and remarriage isn't because they have a debate among themselves about how to properly interpret the law and they want him to adjudicate that debate. It's because they want to get him killed by a wicked politician. Jesus' teaching about marriage is politically dangerous in his day. Jesus' teaching about human sexuality got John the Baptist killed, and the Pharisees know it, and they're trying to use it against him too. It's a good thing we don't have that problem today. It's a good thing there isn't persecution about the teaching of God regarding marriage and sexuality. Now, what's interesting too is where John the Baptist was and where Jesus was had great significance in Jewish tradition. Because they were standing in the very place 
Moses allowed for divorce and remarriage. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see there aren't regulations allowing for divorce and remarriage in Genesis. There it's very clear to become one. Who are you to separate them? Jesus would say. In Exodus, there are no allowances for divorce and remarriage. It's not really until you get to the book of Deuteronomy. In the book of Deuteronomy, it's permitted for the first time. Deuteronomy is one long sermon of Moses. You think you've heard a long homily before? The whole book of Deuteronomy is just one long homily. Moses is out in the wilderness, and what is he doing? Droning on and on and on, giving these laws. Where is he in the region beyond the Jordan? Here's what we read in the beginning of Deuteronomy. This is from the, I'm going to highlight some of the Greek text from the Greek version of the book. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, Paran to Yordano. Verse 3, or verse 5, again, at the very beginning of Deuteronomy, beyond the Jordan, Paran to Yordano. Jesus is standing in the very place where Moses gave the laws of Deuteronomy. Now, that's really significant. Deuteronomy is very significant because Deuteronomy has its own kind of distinctive laws. Deuteros means second. Namos means law. Deuteronomy means second law. Deuteronomy is another law that was given. It's given after the second generation of Israel's sins in the wilderness. And scholars have pointed out that Deuteronomy makes all kinds of allowances that the previous laws did not did not allow for, right? So in the, in the book of Deuteronomy, scholars will say, you have a kind of lower law. God is permitting these people to do things that he hadn't permitted them to do before. In fact, in the book of Ezekiel, this is now on the top of page two of your handout, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 20, Ezekiel is giving a sort of retrospective. He's giving a history of Israel. And when he gets to the part where Deuteronomy is described, God says this, I gave them laws that were not good and statues by which they could not have life. In Deuteronomy, we have laws that are not good. Why did God give these laws? I don't have time to unpack all of them, but let's look at one in particular, divorce and remarriage. Why does Moses permit divorce and remarriage? Well, the fathers and doctors of the church had an answer for that. Let me give you one of those fathers and doctors. His name was St. Thomas Aquinas. You ever heard of him? St. Thomas Aquinas said this. The bill of divorce was permitted in the law, not indeed for the sake of obtaining a greater good. God did not permit divorce so that the people could have a greater good. No. But for the sake of preventing a greater evil, namely, wife murder. Why did God permit the people to divorce their wives? Because if he tells the people, look, the only way you're going to be able to end this marriage is with death. So the only way this marriage ends is if my wife dies. That's correct. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, all right. 
So what does the Lord do? According to St. Thomas Aquinas, God permits divorce because the people are sinful. The people have, as Psalm 95 says, if you pray the breviary, you know this psalm, right? If today you hear his voice, what? Harden not your hearts. The people had just sinned in the wilderness once again. So God allows Moses to give them a lower law, and that law involves divorce. But God does this because the people do not yet have grace. And so in the Old Testament, we have the promise that one day God would do something remarkable. God would establish a new covenant. And as part of that new covenant, he would send his spirit on the people and give them the ability to keep his law. This is what we read in Jeremiah 31. It's on your handout. You're following along under the holiness of the new covenant. The prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The new covenant will be different from the old covenant because the old covenant was broken. The new covenant will involve heart writing. Why does Israel keep breaking the law? Because they have an issue. You know what the issue is? They have a heart problem. Spiritual heart disease. They can't keep the law. Why? Because they're under the power of sin. But God promises one day he will give them the ability to do that. And in the book of Ezekiel, we read, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. I will take out of your flesh the heart of stone and give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you, and look at this, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Why aren't the people keeping the commandments? Because they can't do it. Because it's hard. Because they have hard hearts. This is so important, my friends. Because what does Jesus do in the new covenant? It, Jesus comes to establish the new covenant to give us his grace so that we could do what you couldn't do in the past. One of my great concerns in talking about the church's teaching and talking about the gospel of life is to always make sure that we never shy away from how hard it is to live this vocation. Where do we go from here, 50 years after Humanae Vitae? Well, we go to Christ. Why? Because without him, we can't do this. Amen? There are some people out there today who are saying, you know, the church's teaching is just unrealistic. 
It's just too unrealistic. It's just, it's too hard. I think we need to tone it down a little bit. Maybe we need to, you know, rethink some of these things. It's too hard, too difficult. Setting the bar too high for people. If you think Jesus' teaching is difficult, if you think that Jesus' teaching is hard, you're being too optimistic. Because he actually says it's impossible. If you think marriage is difficult, if you think living marriage, if you think living the gospel of life is hard, you're being too optimistic. Because it isn't hard. It isn't difficult. What does Jesus say? I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can only do a few good things. No, wait, that's not what he says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that what Paul the Sixth is calling us to is not just difficult, it's not just hard, it's impossible? Because if we start thinking that it's in some way possible without God's grace, then we're not going to rely on it. We're not going to rely on prayer. We're not going to rely on the sacraments because it's okay, God, I got it. I can do this. In the gospel, then, Jesus teaches on, male, uh, on, on divorce and remarriage. And they come and they ask him, as we've seen, is it lawful to divorce your wife for anything? Jesus, no. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And the Pharisees are shocked. Why did Moses say this then? Let's go see what Jesus says. This is on the middle of page two. Under Jesus' fulfillment of the law and true holiness. He says, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And Jesus said to them, for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. That's what it is right there. Sclerocardia in the Greek, sclerosis. You've heard that term before? Hardening of heart. For your hardness of heart, Moses gave you these laws. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. And the church's tradition and the fathers in the church, uh, at least there have been different ways to read this, but the fathers of the church were unanimous in saying what it means is Whoever divorces his wife, in some cases, might be porneia, unchastity. In some cases, there's divorce. But whoever marries another commits adultery. And so the church recognizes there are some cases in which, for the equitable distribution of goods, for the protection of, for example, a spouse, for the care 
taking care of children. Sometimes divorce is permissible. But what God has brought together, let no man put asunder, right? In the eyes of God, you can't marry another. That's the way the church has typically read this. I don't have time to get into all the different arguments. Ulrich Lewes. Well, let me just back up. So he says this. And the disciples are astonished. Whoever divorces his wife marries another commits adultery. The disciples say, if such is a man with his wife, it is not expedient to marry. They understand Jesus means it. And Jesus said to them, not all men can receive this teaching. Not everyone can receive God's plan for marriage. But only those to whom it is given. Marriage is a grace. Marriage is a gift. Marriage is a vocation. It's not just a choice you make. And to those whom God calls to marriage, God enables fidelity by his grace, if we're willing to accept it. Now, Ulrich Luz, Protestant scholar, is not especially pleased with a lot of different Catholic teaching in his massive commentary on Matthew, has to admit the following. The prohibition against marrying a divorced woman expands the Old Testament prohibition against remarrying one's divorced wife to include all divorced women. Here there is no exception. And you almost hear him kind of grumble. In my judgment, no ecclesiastical legal solution is as close to the Mathean solution as the Catholic. Catholics get it right. Catholic teaching on divorce and remarriage is meant to preserve Jesus' teaching. But notice what Jesus does next. The disciples say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's not expedient to marry. Jesus says, not all men can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. You have to be given the grace to be able to live this. For there are eunuchs, Jesus says, who have been made so from birth. There are eunuchs who have made, been made eunuchs by men. A eunuch is a castrated man. Usually, uh, when one nation would conquer another nation, they would castrate certain men so that they could be trusted with the royal harem. That's what they did in the ancient world. Jesus talks about men who are eunuchs, but he also goes on to talk about men who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. And this is why we have that very beautiful practice of priestly celibacy in our tradition. Why do we have priestly celibacy? Because Jesus says, he who is able to receive this, let him receive it. That isn't for everyone, but it's a grace that's given. And interestingly enough, after Jesus talks about marriage, the next thing that happens is some children are brought to him. Isn't that funny how marriage leads to children? <laughs> then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked the people. Jesus said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. I mean, as a father, I've always reflected on this, right? Jesus goes from talking about marriage to talk about the importance of welcoming children. Seems to fit. And then the next thing Jesus talks about is poverty, which really fits. Right? You move from marriage, children. But it's an important little saying here that, that comes next. And behold, one came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, 
Why do you ask me about what is good? One there is who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said, which? And Jesus said, you shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said, all these I have observed. What do I still lack? This man says, I've kept all the commandments. What else should I do? Now, I don't know about you, but this guy's pretty impressive. Honor your father and mother? Nope. Always done that. Now, Jesus is God. Jesus could have looked this guy right in the eye and said, Are you kidding me? I remember on your seventh birthday. It's amazing. This man makes this remarkable claim I've kept all the commandments. Jesus doesn't stop him. Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell, your, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So what happens in marriage? It's interesting. You have marriage, you welcome children, and then Jesus talks about the need to be detached from worldly goods. And what happens with this man? This man is being called to sell all that he has to the poor. Jesus doesn't ask that of everybody, but for whatever reason, he thinks this man needs that. He needs to pursue this route. When the man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He couldn't do it. And the disciples, Jesus said to the disciples, truly I say to you, it will be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they said, who then can be saved? Why are they so shocked? Because they can't give away their possessions? No, they already have done that. Peter goes on and says, we left everything. Why are they so shocked? Jesus is asking for a lot from us. Amen? He's asking us, to give up everything. Now, in some cases, people are called to the religious life, but we're all called to be detached. We're all called to let go. And the disciples are utterly appalled because they know they're supposed to go out and teach Jesus' words, and they're like, you know what? This isn't going to sell. <laughs> this is kind of hard, Jesus. You're being unrealistic, Jesus. Maybe you should tone down your teaching just a bit, Jesus. What you're saying is unrealistic. It's impossible. And Jesus doesn't deny it. Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With men this is impossible. Living the gospel of life is impossible. Who can be saved? It's impossible. But this is the amazing thing about God. With him, all things are possible. Amen? Amen? This is why for Catholics, by the way, grace is so amazing. A few years ago, I was invited to contribute to a book. It was being put out by a major Protestant publisher. It's called Four Views on the Role of Good Works, The Final Judgment. And it was three Protestant scholars and myself, and we debated each other in the book. About faith alone, the role of works, and I, I was counseled by some people, maybe you shouldn't do this project, you know? Maybe it's not an even playing field. But I prayed about it. I got to know the editor. I thought, no, this really, 
this looks, I think these guys are sincere scholars. We'll have an open-minded, and I knew some of the scholars who were contributing. At the, these, are, these are good people. We'll have a good discussion. And in the book, I laid out the Catholic view of, of works and grace. A lot of non-Catholic scholars, as you probably know, believe that you're saved by faith alone. That your good works don't play a role in your salvation. And in my chapter, I said, see, now this is why Catholics think grace is amazing. We think grace is so amazing, it can make our works salvific. A lot of non-Catholics are, are appalled by the way Catholics talk about Mary. They say, oh, you, you give too much credit to Mary. You put Mary on too much of a pedestal. You, you attribute too much to Mary. But for Catholics, the only reason Mary is what she is is because she's full of grace. Amen? So I like to tell my Protestant friends, the reason we believe Mary is so holy is because of God's grace. Are you telling me God's grace can't make someone that holy? And at the end of my chapter, I explained, I said, if Catholics are wrong about grace, it's just because we give God too much credit. Because he thinks... Because we think his grace is so powerful, it can enable us to do what is impossible. Right? And that is the Catholic understanding of the gospel of life. And that is the presumption behind Humanae Vitae. Pius, I mean, Paul VI is assuming, in the context of the encyclical, that we receive this in light of the whole of Catholic teaching. And that Catholic teaching helps us understand that God's vision for marriage is hard. It's not just hard. It's impossible. In fact, God's view of marriage, what God is calling us in the marriage, is so humanly impossible, he had to make it a sacrament. Amen? Right? So that we could do it. This is what the Catechism says. Just as, of God, just as of old, God encountered his people with a covenant of love and fidelity, so our Savior, the spouse of the church, now encounters Christian spouses through the sacrament of matrimony. Christ dwells with them, gives them the strength to take up their crosses and so follow him. To rise again after they have fallen. Notice, marriage, when you go to the altar and you say, I do, marriage is pre-programmed with certain graces. One of the graces in marriage is to help you rise up after you've fallen. God knows you're going to fall. But God gives you the grace in the sacrament to get back up again. God gives us, in the grace of the sacrament, the ability to forgive one another it might seem impossible to forgive. I know it is. It's humanly impossible. But God will enable you to find forgiveness, to bear one another's burdens. God will give us his grace so that we can shoulder the burden, to be subject to one another out of reverence to Christ. And this is my favorite line. To love one another with a supernatural, tender, and fruitful love. By virtue of marriage, my wife doesn't have a right to just my love. 
My, I, I, don't owe, I, don't, I don't just owe it to my wife to love her with all that I have. I don't just owe it to my wife to give her all that I have and all that I am. What is it that I'm supposed to love my wife with? A supernatural love. Guess what? On my own resources, I'm out of luck. I can't do it. Because what she is being called to is a supernatural love that can only come from God's grace. Why? Because what is marriage supposed to be? It's supposed to image the relationship of Christ and the church. This is what Paul says in the New Testament. In the letter to the Ephesians, we read, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. How much am I supposed to love my wife? As much as Jesus loved the church. I can't do that. I'm sorry, I'm not Jesus. If I don't feel overwhelmed by that, then I'm in trouble. <laughs> the gospel of life isn't just don't use contraception. The gospel of life isn't don't be unchaste. The gospel of life is that we have the good news that we can become Christ-like in our love for one another. It's not just a negative, it's a positive. And he goes on to say, even so, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no man ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes it and ch cherishes it as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Why are we members of the body of Christ? Because we are the bride of Christ. Because in marriage, the two become one. And he goes on to talk about, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife because the two become one flesh. This is a great mystery. I mean, in reference to Christ and the church. Marriage is meant to point to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Marriage is only possible because of grace. And so you know what that means. It means that our lifeline is found in prayer in the sacraments. Do we really believe this? Here's how you can know. Do you pray with your spouse every night? Do you pray every day? Because if you don't pray, this is what you tell the Lord. I got it. What am I supposed to do? Uh, uh, got it. You know who did that? Ancient Israel. In the wilderness? They got these laws, and then they worshiped the golden calf. And then they came back, and, sorry, God, we repent. All that you say, we will do this time. No problem. We got it. God gave more laws, and what did they do? They sinned. And so what did they do? They come back, oh, we're really sorry this time. What new laws? Oh, when are they? Oh, that's a lot more. Yeah. These are complicated. Yeah. Not that. Okay. Got it. We got it. No problem. We can do it. Yes, we can do it. No, you can't. Some people in our society say, yes, we can. You know what I say? No, you can't. <laughs> right? Because that's what Scripture teaches us. Paul says, I don't even understand my own actions, he says in Romans 7. Right? We can't do it. We are utterly dependent upon grace. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why we need to pray every day. We need to set aside time for prayer every day. Because we are utterly and completely dependent on God's help. It's not just about bucking up. It's not about, 
a New Year's resolution. This time, this year, we're really going to pull it off. No, you can't. You're going to fail. Only by God's grace can we succeed. So do we go to the sacraments? Do we go to the sacrament of reconciliation? Are we frequenting the sacrament of reconciliation? Are we frequenting the Eucharist? And if we're married, are we praying together? Pope Francis said the following, with a renewed sense of responsibility, the church continues to propose marriage in its essential elements, not as an ideal for a few. Marriage is, oh, it's just an ideal. Some people can't live up to that. No, no. It's not as an ideal for a few. Despite modern models centered on the ephemeral and the transitory, instead of saying, do you love this person till death do you part? People are now saying, do you love this person? Will you, you know, un until you no longer love one another? What is that all about, <laughs> right? So long as we both love each other. <laughs> I don't know when that will, what, what kind of commitment is that? Despite modern models centered on the ephemeral and the transitory, but as a reality, the church proposes marriage in its essential elements, not as an ideal, but as a reality that with the grace of Christ can be lived by all the baptized faithful. All the baptized faithful can live the gospel of life. Not just avoiding contraception. Not just learning chastity. We can do the impossible we can learn to love like Christ. But only if we trust him. Only if we believe in him. Only if we have faith. I tell you, that faith was deeply shaken for us, for my wife and I a few years ago. After we had our second baby, we were expecting our third and we were very excited about having another child. I looked very much forward to another baby, thinking it could be a girl, could be another boy. I don't know. The two kids that we had uh, at the time already were our whole life. And uh, they were 15 months apart. And we'd put them in the same room and then go out to the living room and watch the baby monitor and watch them climb into each other's beds and giggle. And it was, it was hilarious. And we couldn't wait to throw another third child into the mix. And um, it was Holy Week and we were going for a regular, my wife was scheduled for a regular ultrasound. And we went in, it was Holy Thursday in fact. And she had just had an ultrasound a few weeks before this time there was no heartbeat. And the doctor was somewhat concerned. We were very, very scared. We saw the baby on the ultrasound. We'd come up with a name for the baby. Very excited to welcome the child into the world. When he comes up, come up with names, boy or girl. And we went to Holy Thursday Mass, not knowing what would happen. The doctor said, the baby still could be alive. Maybe the heartbeat is just somehow hidden. 
We'll do another text, test next week, coming on Monday. We went to Holy Thursday Mass. And we meditated, of course, as we always do, on Jesus' agony in the garden. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And we went into the chapel afterwards as they reposed the Blessed Sacrament every Holy Thursday. My wife and I got a babysitter so she and I could spend a while praying for this child. And all I could think of was, as I asked the Blessed Mother for her intercession in the rosary, all I could think of was, here I was asking the Blessed Mother to keep me from going what she went through. Watching her own son die on the cross. Good Friday, we got up, we're planning to go to Good Friday service, go to the stations as well, and my wife started bleeding. And she passed the baby on Good Friday. It was a Good Friday unlike any other. And it was so hard to try to understand, Lord, why would you allow us to go through this? We were so excited to have another child. What are you doing here? Deeply painful, full of questions. And we went to uh, the, the pastor who, uh, my wife worked at the parish, so we knew him very well. Good Friday. It was amazing. He dropped everything and he came to our apartment. And he said, I know a good Catholic funeral home. They'll take the remains of the child. Still, the, it was, a, it was late, later in the pregnancy. It wasn't early in the pregnancy that this happened. So we still had, we had a baby. And so we took the baby to the, we could see the baby. We, we, we took the baby to this funeral home. And Father Michael just was very much a father to us that day. And uh, Holy Saturday, he spent with us. Even though he had so many things going on in the church, he dropped everything to spend time with us. And well, the funeral home actually couldn't receive the baby's body, which we had put in a nice box. And so Father Michael said, let me take care of the baby tonight in the rectory. And so Holy Saturday, we went to the church. He had taken the baby on Good Friday. We go to the church on Holy Saturday. He says, we'll go to the funeral home now. And he knows, Father Michael knows, that um, I have two boys, and I pray every day for their vocation. Pray every day. God, if they're called to be a priest, let that be your will. If it's not, whatever. But please give them that gift if it's in alignment with your plans. And he picks, up, picks, picks us up at the rectory, and he says, Michael, I want to let you know something. I know you pray every night that one of your children will be a priest. So last night, I took the remains of baby Gabriel into the chapel with me as I wrote my Easter vigil homily. And Gabriel helped at least write one homily. Father Michael was such a, a father to us, recognizing how much we were willing to give. And another couple in the parish a few weeks later announced some great news. After years and years of trying to conceive, almost a decade, they had finally conceived a child and they were pregnant. And we were so happy for them. And so we decided to cook them dinner one night and try to plan things out. And things got a little delayed. And my wife ended up bringing dinner to their house one night. She came up to the door 
The woman opened the door, and she was in tears. Ten minutes before, she had just lost her baby. My wife had gone through this incredible pain and was able to connect with her in a way she never would have otherwise. Before we knew it, we had all these other women in San Diego who were reaching out to my wife, and we were talking to all these. My wife was going out to these other women's houses, and I don't understand why God allows the pain of, of miscarriage to happen. I don't, I don't always understand that, but at least in this case, it seemed God brought great good from that. But I, I know this. If we hadn't been praying in the chapel on Holy Thursday night, and saying what Jesus prayed in the garden, not my will, but thy will be done, we never would have been able to make it out the other end, as we did. We can only live this gospel in our lives by his grace. Paul VI talks about some of the consequences that we'd see in our culture. And we've seen many of the things I've already mentioned. I think we're aware also that we're finding scandals even within the church on levels that we're all troubled by. And in some cases, it might lead us to despair. But we only despair if we forget that God gives us his grace. And it's not, no situation is impossible. I think of what Father Michael did for us. And whatever scandals there are with priests, with clergy, I always remember Father Michael, who is a good priest, and our father. We need our priests. And we need to recognize that if we don't heed Paul VI's advice, we're going to see, we're going to reap what he feared we would sow. But at the same time, with God's grace, nothing is impossible. Healing from those scandals, the church can be healed. Our families can be healed. And we as lay people need to lead the way as we practice this in our own lives. Not shrugging off the difficulties. Not pretending that it's not going to be a, a trial or a challenge. But trusting in the Lord Jesus. Recognizing that as he did... Sometimes we will have to stand up to political oppression. We will have to face rulers and authorities who don't understand God's vision for human family life. We know that we will see a society that continues down this path of cor corrosive selfishness. But if we stay close to him, we know even if they behead John the Baptist, the world can be saved. Because you can kill the Messiah, but you can't defeat him. And the church can be wounded, but the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why don't we end with a prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we know that you send your Holy Spirit upon us. Just as you sent that Holy Spirit on the apostles at Pentecost to enable them to go out and be witnesses, send that same Holy Spirit upon us so that we can be witnesses in our own lives, in our own families, of the power of your grace. Help us to never become convinced that we can do 
that we can keep your law on our own, that we can practice in our marriages and in our families what it is you've set before us without your help. And so we ask you to give us a renewed love for the sacraments and a renewed desire to spend time in prayer. We ask you, Lord, to empower us through these things to live the gospel of life so that we can be united to you for all eternity. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much. I appreciate your attention. Um, I, I don't have a booth or anything like that, but uh, you can, you can uh, check out uh, my website, The Sacred Page, where I write with Brant Petrie and John Bergsma and John Kincaid, and uh, encourage you to learn more about the Augustine Institute. If you don't know much about us, we have a very exciting uh, graduate school, and we have formed.org, which is in many of your parishes, uh, through which you can watch all sorts of great Catholic content. Uh, and I want to encourage you to check that out. Thank you so much. God bless.